I'd like to just focus in on one, one aspect that we briefly touched upon, um, but is becoming increasingly common within, within intensive care, and that is patients with complex with complex wounds, aprostomies, um, coming to coming to ITU, particularly with with vac dressing. So it's not uncommon for me to be asked questions um, by the nursing staff about a vac dressing that is having a problem, whether that's that. Uh, the, the seal, the seal is inadequate. Um, whether it's that, it, that it's that it's leaking or the is being drained out of it, and you know, my experience with these is is increasing. But I'm not the expert in this, and it's the and it's the surgical team who who realistically. So I wonder if we could just spend the next five or ten minutes just talking talking through these complex wounds, especially focusing on back dressings and. The problems that crop up and what we as intensivists can can do um, to manage these and when should we be calling the surgical team about them? Yeah, I think so. Two things. So, so just that as a point of interest. So, every single laparotomy I do comes back with a vac dressing. So, we use what's called a closed pressure system, um, um, and essentially, so you close the wound as you would do normally. We we'll put a vac dressing on the top. So, even a, a complete so. I don't know, um, an emergency laparotomy for whatever reason, the, the abdomen's completely closed, the skin is completely closed, they still have an, a, a dressing on the top, and that's reduced our wound morbidity by third. So actually, us needing to use vax for emergency cases or high-risk cases has actually gone down, thankfully, but it still absolutely still happens. Um, but those are quite interesting. So when we started doing that, um, there would often be a problem with the seal, and I'll come back to that, and the, and the dressing would just get taken off. And in themselves, they're about two, 300 quid per dressing. And then we would come on the next morning and stick another one back on. And then the patient would then have a bit of a leak later on. And suddenly you're wasting five, six hundred pounds and all the rest of it on, on, on fairly complicated dressings. So the common problems that you're going to get, I guess, are, are probably threefold. One is uh, a problem with the seal, as in the vac is sucking, but it's not sucking well enough. And that usually means there's a gap somewhere. It essentially does mean there's a gap somewhere. And what you can do about that slightly depends on where it is and how complicated. So if it's a, a straightforward abdominal wound, it usually means that there's one of the edges has come a bit loose, either because it's got wet or because it hasn't stuck properly, hairy skin or the, it was a bit wet in the theatre. And simple things you can do is try and patch it up. So you can get some um, of the clear dressing, the sticky dressing, and just try and patch it up and put some on. on. And that's often sufficient. The other end of that spectrum is that the, actually the dressing is so wet the whole thing's just not able to suck. And so you can you keep patching it up and putting a bit of pressure on. And then you, you see these people, so they, they come back and there's three or four layers of dressings on them. And it looks like, oh my God, what, what's happened here? And actually in that situation, what I think you should do is I think that's a, a surgical problem that you should cause to look at. Because either will decide it just needs to be, the whole thing needs to be redone. And often that can be done on high dependency unit, depending on the dressing and the patient and, and everything else. Um, or actually, kind of it doesn't need to be done and we can just take it off and use a different dressing packing and that will last in the morning it's not ideal but then we can review because patient might need to go back to theatre with some back dressings of course it'd be very complicated wounds of fistulas perineal wounds is it obviously a common one and they're very difficult to patch up the problem they get so the reason they get so many problems with the seal is because again particularly for perineal dressings is in a, in, a, in a lady, you've got obviously the back of the vagina. In a man, you've got the testicles, et cetera, the scrotum. So trying to physically get the, the sticky dressing to stick is often very difficult, which is why 
when there's a VAP change in the emergency theatre, depending on where it is, you can sum to the, the size as you book it or whatever. Um, and those patients who need to go back for three or four changes or more, sometimes because it's so complicated. So if that happens to that patient in, on that intensive care, and you're not going to probably be able to patch that patient up. Um, and I, I think, you know, that's sometimes an experience thing, sometimes recognising it. Well, you know, this patient's had 10 returns of theatre for their VAC. It's obviously difficult. And in that situation, you can just either turn the suction down or leave the suction off and it'll fill. But it, it'll depend how leaky the wound is. Um, the kind of other, other problem is if you've got someone who's completely stable on ITU for whatever reason they're there, let's say it's a respiratory wean or whatever, but they need their VAC changed and, and depending again on the dressing that you've got, that VAC will need to be changed between every two to four days. Um, and, and, and most patients, certainly once the, the routines there can manage that with either a little bit of analgesia or sedation maybe, obviously they're intubating the sleep, it's clearly more simple, but some of those patients will have chronic pain issues and will not be able to tolerate that and will need to go back to theatre for dressing changes. But, you know, we're all keen to minimise anaesthesia where necessary so again that's I think a complicated area and the reality is in most places it's probably done by the surgical team and I think it's one of the one of the issues we have is is when that dressing becomes a problem is then someone being free at that time to go and sort it out and I think that's where good links with your common surgical nursing teams are really important so Again, where I work, we've got a kind of dedicated colorectal, de dedicated OG ward who are very used to having those patients that often are in for months. And the nursing staff do a much better job than we do of changing the dressings almost universally. We've got a, a very good fellow that does a lot of them, but we've got you know, excellent nurses who are really skilled. They're kind of you know, working at a level of tissue viability, et cetera, with what dressings are available and things. So actually, we should have the ability to kind of ask for nursing help the, the, the problem again comes with that similar is it's, it's staffing numbers isn't it and it's having the time to go along but certainly for very complicated wounds we'll often when it's a planned dressing change we'll often try and coordinate that with our nursing team try and come and help us and sometimes that's our specialist nursing team because they are phenomenal difficult stomas difficult wounds we'll actually say right 10 o'clock on friday morning could you get the patient ready and we'll turn it with a load of stuff and, and quickly do it and and things but actually What's probably better than that is rather than me just turning up at 10 o'clock with all the kit and doing it, is actually, right, let's get a couple of the ITU nurses that still do it together and, and things. But it, again, it's trying to figure that out within the conflicts of time and things and making proper time for it for that. And, and our nurse specialists are invaluable. They, they, you know, they've seen it, they've, 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 they've done it before, they've got the T-shirt, what have you. They, it, it's about utilising that expertise. And the same with stoma care, you know, complex stoma issues. So one of the issues with dressings often is, is how you put it on and where the stoma bag or bags are and trying to get that kind of matched up. Um, and again, probably as intensive care, you probably had no training on, on stomas other than seeing them and, and kind of knowing what they are and things. And, and as surgeons, we, you know, unless you go and spend a day with a stoma nurse, which I would absolutely recommend every surgical training should do, you, you don't know, you say, oh, stoma training, next. And, you know, you don't you don't have to know everything about it, but actually, you know, for example, with the with the Abthera dressings, which is the closed vacuum dressings, if you put a normal um, stoma bag on, if that's not positioned right, you will get a leak and you'll take the stoma bag off because the bag works and the Abthera will come off. So, for example, little things like you can use a two piece. So you've got a stoma bag and you've got a, a, a ring and they're separate. And actually, that means that you can take the bag off. I can look at the stoma so I can examine it and I can put another bag on without disturbing the dressing. So there's lots of things we can do, which I think are more in the remit as if the surgeon should really be leading on that. But actually, 
to say that middle of the night, oh, I don't know if this is okay. We, we should probably be running some sessions. And again, you know, out, it's out of hours, isn't it, where it's difficult. In hours, there's people around. You've got nurse specialists, you've got tissue viability, you've got consultant magistrates. It's the out of hours, leaky dressing. Um, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's, you know, it's do no harm, isn't it? And, and most of the time, if the dressing's not vacuumed properly, the most annoying thing is it alarms. That's the, for, the, for everybody, isn't it? But actually, if it's not sucking, it, it can usually wait until it's a bit of an emergency thing. I'm, I'm, uh, the second thing, I guess, is drain is output from vacs, and again, what that and I think the things aren't they are what what fluid is in it and and volume, and it, like you say, what's expected. So you'd expect you know a laparostomy on average to produce a few hundred mils a day, um, but I think you know if that's rapidly at a level, you know, you're getting a few hundred mils an hour or something like that, or clearly the colour is of something like blood or or bowel content, even at low volume, that we're going to probably want to know about that, and that's. You know fairly obvious but again not necessarily if you've got again it can be you know if you've got a fistula you might be sucking around you might expect bowel content but absolutely as you as an intensivist if you've got something like that i would want to be called because i might say that's what i'm expecting but i would rather have that call and say no that's fine we're expecting it than find out the next day or whatever and and, and again with good communication and things that's a quick phone call isn't it like you know, this this fact producing um, a bit of Kyle, for example. Well, that's fine. We know he's got a Kyle leak. We're doing it for managing like that. He's going back to stay the next couple of days or whatever. That's fine, isn't it? But if you're coming on, that's a quick, quick phone call rather than, oh, it's probably okay, but I better check. Um, so I think, again, it's, it, 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 again, some basic education would be useful. I think that's probably pretty simply done. You know, a once a year study day or study morning, even if it doesn't have to be that long. Would probably quite a good thing on on all so you get stoma nurses you get tissue viability nurses um in would be probably quite a good thing we, we've done those before um and i think the problem is with the complex itu patient from a nurse and a medical point there's so much going on with them that the wound is then i think often delegated to the, to the surgical team um which is which is fine and i think that we've got to be engaged enough to recognize that that just needs to be sorted out um, but I think as you said the difficulty is like before it's the out of hours isn't it with what's right what's not right and and who do I call yeah yeah and I think I think the the one thing that I would take from what from what you said Peter is that it is really that actually if I'm looking at a surgical patient and the vac dressing that he's looking at and thinking especially to do with the output and it's not and it's not right is that I'd be far more comfortable just asking the question about is this what I'm expecting there to be? You know, rather than I mean, worrying, wondering about the state of the patient, and just saying, is this what you expect? And if it is, we can park that and, and not worry about it. And then it also gives us the opportunity to ask, when will you? What will worry you about this? You know, this seems unusual to me, but you're okay with it. What changes would you would you want to be contacted about? So I don't think we ask that question enough about when about when do you want to be contacted. And I think it's, it, again, it's it's because there'll be variations. So you might do, as I say, you do two similar operations. It's I don't know, two exenterations, and actually one's just been it's more difficult. It's more stuck. There's been more oozing, and actually in that situation, you're probably going to accept a slightly higher blood loss from the drain than someone that was absolutely bone dry and it was you know it's gone like a dream. There's, not been a drop of blood spill and it's been absolutely blown dry for that person to suddenly get four or five hundred mils i'm concerned about but the usually person with a couple of hundred mils well that's fine and i think that's that's very difficult for you to know 
kind of what I'm thinking. And, 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 and again, that's about us communicating that. So go right to you say, look, this is really difficult. You get a few hundred mils in the drain, don't worry. And like you say, worry if X, Y, and Z happens. Um, and the same, you know, uh, in communication about when, you know, when things are okay. So I think it, it is asking those questions and handing over. And, and I think, you know, an ITU handover, isn't it, is by the, usually by the recovery slash anesthetic team to the ITU team. And, and we're probably not involved in that in, for the main in most places. Um, and it's, it, you know, yes, there's an operation. Yes, it's got post-op instructions in, but it, it probably is not specific enough to that case in most instances that, as it could be. So I think that, you know, it's, that's inherent on us to make sure we've communicated. Well, I'm worried about this because, or if X, Y, and Z happens, I want to know. Um, but again, some of that's lost in handover, isn't it, with shift systems anyway? So I think it's, it's almost like having a, a top of the bed checklist and saying, you know, if this, this, and this curls, we want to know almost, or, you know, it doesn't have to be mentally. I guess the, the problem with that kind of system is sometimes people rely on it and actually something else happens and then they don't tell, oh, it wasn't on the list. But I think it's, you know, if there's certain specific things that would trigger concern in patient X, well, actually, then we have to make sure we've communicated that to you guys so that you can tell us. Otherwise, how are you meant to know? You know, you're very good, but you're not mind readers in the main. <laughs> so, so I think that is, we, we've got to take ownership to make sure we do that. And I think, you know, kind of working together, joint ward rounds, um, reviews and things, that kind of thing is is really important. I, I, if I've done a case and they've gone to ITU, I, I generally speaking, I'll walk around because I want to see them on ITU before I leave. But I try and catch somebody. But again, if you're off busy dealing with someone really sick, then, then that's not going to happen. So I think it's about making sure that we've, you know, communicated, we're expecting this or I'm not expecting this um, and, and, and being clear about that. Yeah, as, as you're saying, yeah. having a, the top of the bed checklist, you, you said the thing that came in my mind of, you'd have a list of potential complications and, and a list of things you'd, you'd, you'd be worried about. Yeah, something that you'd be worried about or that you hadn't listed would happen and then you wouldn't be called because it's not on the list. I mean, you rely on we rely on people to be to be adults about about these things, but human human errors happen in in these things. And if the culture is one of being approachable and being open, then actually it, it shouldn't matter whether something is listed or not because somebody should feel comfortable enough um, calling. And and there can be a fair call. We've all been as a trainee either with a difficult trainer, boss, whatever, or, you know, where we've been a, a bit apprehensive to call, we've, we've all been there. And so I think as consultants, we've got to try and change that and say, look, and, and it's difficult, you know, you know, if you get called through in the morning and it's a, it's a relatively straightforward question, it, 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 people can get a bit grouchy, but we've got to try and move away from that and try and say, yeah, that, yeah that's absolutely fine. Um, you know, and try and use it as education as much as you can. But actually, then, if that's a, if that's a frequent pattern that someone's either not getting called or getting called all the time, well, that shows that probably there's an educational gap there. And actually, you know, you've got to try and almost take a step back and say, well, okay, why aren't they calling me? Okay, is that because please don't be scared? I want to know about my patients. I'm happy to be called. I'm, you know, you know, please call me up or whatever. Or is that that actually you're calling quite a lot? Now it, that's fine, but you know, is that because actually you've no idea you know what what this what vac dressing is i've never seen one before or you've moved hospitals and pain busters is a good one we, we use pain busters in all our laparotomies so local anesthetic infusion and we use them frequently but again if, if the wires can become disconnected or the wires falling out or something like that and um, that's a common call and um you know what should we do about it? And the answer is well it's come out now it's probably too late but actually 
sometimes that's because it's confused with a drain or someone's come where they haven't seen those being used and again then that's that's an opportunity isn't it you know maybe not necessarily three in a moment so well, okay, let's sit down let's go through the common analgesics that we use post-operative laparotomies in in trust or let's talk about advanced pelvic cancer and the common complications that we see and what we're really worried about or you know that kind of thing you know the example before we talked about with someone bleeding where the drains were actually falsely reassuring so you had a couple of hundred mils in the drain and actually they're nothing but you know you walk in you know this patient's clearly bleeding <laughs> like they're clearly bleeding but the drains look absolutely fine and, and and that kind of thing so you know what what are we worried about and what are you worried about so what you know like you said before the the, the inotropic escalate escalation things and that kind of thing and and I think I think it's about you know both of us trying to educate and, and work together to kind of minimize that human error there'll always always be that but we've got to try and work to try and and it, yeah like I say it, I think it is a culture thing and, and most of the time I think when that culture's failed it's often through stress and it's through being pulled in so many directions um and and then you're so busy you're firefighting that you know firefighting so you never get a chance to kind of look at the bigger picture and that's difficult to do when you're in amongst and everything is kind of going chaotic and things so I think it's about having that well let's take a step back and it might be something as simple as well, let's discuss some m&ms in a, in a in a nice way uh, in a nice friendly way that say well actually look at point x this patient the ward got sick and what happened well nobody came why did nobody come well actually there was 15 patients in a &E. there's always 15 patients waiting to be seen any &E. i couldn't get there well actually that's not a blame on that person that should be right okay we know that between five and ten o'clock at night is, is is carnage on the admission ward well actually we need to change the way we do our rotor or we need to change you know and it, uh, it's so busy that we're often firefighting and it's, it's very difficult to take that backward step and look at things but i think that's that is the way we generally can can make things better and and, and things and and i think once you you know i i know here if i have a sick patient i pick up the phone to the itu team that will be that will be the patient will be sorted out and and even if it's something simple or whatever um, you know, we had, a, we had an elective patient who ended up getting cancelled as potassium was 2. something, 2.12. And, and, and actually, you know, so they end, we gave them a couple of days of, of quite, you know, as much as we could safely give on the ward, but we went in, went across line, put in, you had 24, 40 hours. Those kind of even relatively simple things, a quick phone call once you've got a unit that works together is, is, is very straightforward. And, and I think, you know, where, where, where there's been incidents of patients not receiving optimum care, it's often because the kind of channels and the pathways haven't worked like they should um and, and, it, and i think as i say when, when it's busy it's, it's very difficult and that's the reality on the floor for a lot of places but it's it's about having someone invested to take the time to, to always step back and work how can we make this better um you know emergency laparotomies is a great example so you know neil has done a lot to kind of drive that um with the laparotomy audit but again we looked at ours and said, well, actually, you know, often the patients aren't getting their CT to the afternoon if it's, it's you know, if not necessarily sick, you know, there's small bowel obstruction. So we're at three o'clock in the afternoon, we're saying, well, this guy's got closed loop obstruction, et cetera. And then they're not getting laparotomy until later. So actually what you should what's have a couple of dedicated needle laparotomy CT slots in the morning. So we find out about that at 10 o'clock in the morning and we're booking the patient then rather than at four o'clock in the afternoon, patients on the table not getting the theater till 10. So, I think it's 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 having people who have got time to do that, which is tricky. But once you do it, I think you can make a big difference. This leads really nicely onto onto the onto the next thing that um, that we're going to talk about as well, and that's one of the deteriorating on um, on, on intensive care. I am realistically post-operative difference. 
I think what we'll do is we'll, we'll talk through some of the more the more clinical aspects of it first, and then there's a um, and then there's a couple of um, a couple of extra bit extra bits uh, uh, sort of a, around around the patient as well. Um, abdominal compartment syndrome um, is something that is obviously is disastrous for patients if it if it occurs, and especially if it's something that we that we that we miss. What sort of patient would you be? Would you firstly be concerned about the potential for abdominal compartment syndrome, and what what sort of things would would raise your suspicion that that is something that is that is um, developing? I think compartment syndrome is is, is, a, is is a really good one to talk about because I think the key thing has got to be suspicion. I think it's missed frequently because you know if someone's bleeding or they're septic. It it's probably easy to pick it up. And compartment syndrome is sort of sad. they're just not quite right, or their respiratory pressures are going up, or their urine output's a bit rubbish. Well, we'll keep filling them up. So I think the first thing is absolutely having a suspicion for it. So from our point of view, the things that would kind of make me worried is, 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 is it's all the classic things, but I think the one that's often forgotten is things with complex concisional hernias, because you basically got a, you know, a man or woman who's got a big hernia, we've stuffed everything back into a smaller cavity, and then we've wrapped it really tight. So, you know, I think that's one that's often forgotten about. I think with changes in the way that hernias are now managed and they're complex ones for sure with dedicated MDTs and, and surgical units doing them, it's probably better appreciated. Um, the other group of patients is I think anyone who's had a long operation or difficult, so that can be clearly anything, but yeah, in particular, I'm thinking of complex cancer operations, so exenterations, ripples procedures, esophagectomies, so long operations, the long emergency laparotomy, complex inflammatory bowel disease, those kind of things. I think anything that's difficult, whether it's likely to be fluke shifts or bleeding or whatever, I think absolutely. And from our point of view, that's going to increase their chance of getting surgical ileus so or obstruction, distension, et cetera, secondary that. So I think that suspicion is key. Obviously you can measure compartment pressure. I think it's probably one of the most difficult things to do on a sick patient. And I think it's often probably not done very well because it is difficult. And of course, then we get a value and then it's like, ah, the patient's all right, we'll probably ignore it anyway. So you think, well, what's the point of that? So I think suspicion's key. From a surgical point of view, I would say for me, it's about you, the person seeing a patient, whether that's yourselves or whatever, having that suspicion of being worried, that should trigger us, I think, to be involved or at least know about them. So let's say, you know, Mr. Bloggs had such and such, or got bad pancreatitis or had an, and, and their urine output's just not responding to fluids as it should do or their respiratory pressures are going up and I cannot think of another reason why, you know, that kind of thing. I, I think that should prompt us to be involved. If, obviously, if you're measuring pressures, the trend is, is key and, uh, you know, pressure more than 20 or going the wrong way, then it, then it might be actually, well, okay, so you film it, so the urine output's not great, the pressures are they're okay, but they, they're on the way up. I'm probably not going to rush and do anything. I, I, I want to come and see the patient, but I would want to make sure, you know, let's do something simple, make sure they're relaxed properly, make sure that they're, got an NG tube if you think they've got an ileus, those kind of basic things. Because sometimes they're forgotten and you, people are like, well, I need left hang second. They've actually got a massive gastric volvulus or gastric distension and NG tube down. And I've seen that in the war where a patient got really sick a few months ago and essentially just had an ileus, got gastric stasis, stomach filled up. And we were about to take them to HGU with last thing we were doing before they went to stick an NG tube down, got three or four liters. And this guy literally just like resurrected. And, and it's because it, like, it was like, oh, so sorry, that's why. Took three or four liters off bit of fluid in right as rain and didn't need to go so i think you know making sure the simple things have been done from an intensive care point of view i think if you've got that suspicion that should really prompt a kind of reasonably early call and it might be look i'm a bit worried about mr blogs in, in bed three he's had this done is urine output's okay but it's not brilliant i'm giving him quite a bit of fluid he's pretty distended 
I don't think anything to do now, but I'll call you back in an hour or two. That's okay. That's reasonable. And then in an hour or two, you, you call back and say, actually, I, I've done everything simple. I've, he's got an NG tube down. I've given him a bit more fluid. You know, he is intubated, but he's fully relaxed. His pressures, I've measured it's now gone up, or his ventilation pressures have gone up again. Um, I think the difficulty when it when it comes with that, I think from an intensive care point of view, you probably see the surgeon saying, well, we're not going to do very much. And then suddenly it's all or nothing. Then we'll take them into a laparostomy and, and probably a bit of frustration from that point of view. And that's because, you know, as, as you know, a laparostomy is a, is a pretty major thing to do. And it's, it's you know, confine that patient to a difficult wound to manage and however it's going to be closed. And, and there's lots of different ways you can do that. So it, it is a last resort. But what you don't want is the alternative, which is obviously that patient missing that window opportunity and end up and things. So I think, you know, things that will trigger us, you know, lactates, renal function, whether that's urine output, whether that's, you know, numbers, urea, creatinine, et cetera, difficult to ventilate without an obvious reason. Um, those are things that I think we would want to know about. And I think probably historically, it's probably been our intensive care will sort that out. You know, that the kidneys are going off. Well, that's, that's, that's an ITU problem, isn't it? And I think we need to move away from that because, Yes, it absolutely might be that 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 that, that it's it's that they're underfilled or whatever, but actually it could be clearly an early indicator of other things. So, um, and, and I guess that's the other thing. So again, you know, for us around cancer, that you know, if we're trying to do kind of preservation of ureters and kidneys, there's the chance we damage them. And so three or four days later, the creatinine's going up. Otherwise, look fine. Well, actually, I'm thinking, oh, have I have I damaged the ureter, or have I, you know, have I have I made it ischemic or whatever? So again. On a quick surgical ward, you'd hope people would look at blood tests, but it might not be. If it's not been flagged, it might be, oh, it looks put it at the end of the bed. And actually, they've got a very slowly rising creatinine that's been missed. So I think it's about suspicion. And if suspicion's there, I think we should be involved and we should be involved in that decision making. And there will be times that my two colleagues said, Peter, this patient needs laparostomy. Yeah, need laparostomy. Or, but most of the time, isn't it? It's actually, you know, we're observing them over three, four, six hours and they're just not responding to those basic things. And and again, I think dual decision making in that situation is much better for the patient because as a surgeon, I'm emotionally invested in that person. I am thinking, oh, God, what have I done? What have I caused? Something's gone wrong. Uh, as an intensivist, you're probably thinking, oh, well, have I missed something? Have I not done this? And I think, you know, both people are emotionally invested. So I think having that open communication, say, well, OK, well, we've tried this. It's not worked. We've tried this. It's not worked. We've given a period of observation, we've measured their pressure, it's gone from 20, yeah, might not be accurate, but it's now 30, or whatever it is, actually, is what's key. So, yeah, lactate, renal function, respiratory, clinical, I think the key is going to be clinical concern. And I think compartment syndrome is a really good one because it's the one that is often forgotten about because it's, you know, it's, it's not a direct complication in terms of you've made something bleed or you've caused an infection it's it's a sort of more subtle thing that the pressure by what you've done inside too much so i think it's it's often kind of missed and it's the common one that is missed yeah and it's as i have learned it's very easy example as well it's very so the, i mean there is if there's interest i remember there's a world um, association of compartment syndrome and they have like really good flow charts of how to manage things and and that's you know it's great exam fodder isn't it it's absolutely great exam fodder and things but i i think you know you try the simple things you decompress what you can decompress the other one that we commonly see is is pseudo obstruction uh, a surgeon so that the, the patients had nothing done to their belly and so they've had um i don't know some neurological surgery uh, either cerebral or whatever spinal surgery is the classic one they get a big pseudo obstruction their colon fills up they get a really tense abdomen and get really sick and no one can kind of figure out why and it's usually when the nurse say well 
he hasn't had a poo for a week. You're like, ah. Oh. <laughs> and suddenly, you know, you get a plain film, you get a CT, whatever it is in your institution, and, you know, quick flexi-sig chronoscope, you've decompressed them and, and, and they're back to normal. And and again, it, it, it's it, it's often those simple things that, that can be missed. So, you know, everyone's thinking he's gone off. It must be something related to epidural hematoma or they've got meningitis from sepsis or the metalwork's gone infected, whatever it might be. But actually, it's about that layer of level of suspicion and things. And I think like with anything, isn't it, with any medicine or with any any sick patient, if you, if you, you know, it, it's obvious, but you, you perform an intervention, if it doesn't work, you reassess and you think again. And if, you know, if, if you think someone's underfilled and you're giving them fluid or the inotropes are going up and it's not working, think, oh, why isn't this working? It should do. Either they're just really sick or actually something else is going on. And that, that's fine, isn't that? That, you know, time is, is, is a great diagnostic tool from that point of view. But I, I think from an intensive care point of view, I'd say, you know, if you've got clinical concern about that, we, we should know about that. Even if it's a case we're going to observe it and we're not going to rush and do anything. Um, because I think that if there's, if there's deterioration, you know, or the, the parameters change, that's the point where you said before, you said, well, when would you be concerned? So I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to digress here because of something that you said, um, which is something I've always, uh, I suppose, had a, had a degree of curiosity about. You said that you have a... a a different emotional investment in the patient was it, it, it's you who have it's you who have created the damage you're the one who's wielded the, the sharp the sharp the sharp steel you're the one who, who has created the wound um, and with curative intent as well i'm envious of surgeons because you actually have an ability to cure someone and i i do not have that ability um, i don't know if i agree with that that you don't but yeah but no you're right i think yeah there's absolutely emotional investment yeah, and I just, I suppose, it, I think it's where often the, the surgical mindset about about that investment in the patient, I think we, we as non-surgical team, I think perhaps don't quite appreciate it to the same extent, because I think sometimes we look at surgeons as you are, you are doing people, you, 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 you do an operation and you know, that is, that is for a lot, the large part of the work. In the, in the first instance, um, complete, which means then when we have a problem on care, I think we then find it difficult to to find that middle ground of sometimes actually of the observation period to say let's see what the trend is doing. We're often calling a surgeon, thinking what well, we're going to call because the surgeon is going to do something because they are do, doing doing people, you know, um, and I think and I think sometimes that that almost makes the communication difficult in some ways because because we we have this expectation that something will be done and you almost feel this weight of disappointment when a surgeon says let's let's just observe though though often it's the right thing to be to be doing because you know to go to go back in after somebody's already had an operation it has got huge implications and complications for for patients afterwards I think that's true. I think I think the, the, the key thing is again it's a communication, isn't it? So I think you're right. Sometimes you think, well, I've done everything I can on IT with literally with phone, kitchen sink, and 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 actually these need you, you guys need to come make it better. And I think it's how we so we say, well, yeah, I could take this patient back, but actually that isn't going to fix the problem. And and and, and I, I think you'll have seen it on, 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 on going on both ways of the spectrum. Some surgeons who are very keen to take and quick to take patients back with the theatre, and some who are the exact opposite and are very reluctant. And, and that's born with, again, experience, the psychology of the surgeon, the difficulty of the operation, and there's so many factors involved in that. And of course, there's not often a right or wrong answer for a lot of these patients. 
And so, you know, we will all of surgeons have had patients that we, we wish them take them back earlier or that we hadn't taken them back and, and trying to get that balance right. And there's good evidence and there's evidence of studies out there that actually you probably shouldn't take your own complications back because you, what, you know, there's, you, you're, you are caught up and your decision making is, is un, undoubtedly. So I think a good rule of thumb for us is, is actually, you know, I'm not talking every complication, but, but a complicated complication, particularly going back to theatre, actually asking a colleague to either be there or to agree or disagree with your decision is really important. So, for example, an asthmatic leak, if I've got someone, I mean, even if it's barn door, I, I, will, let, I will speak to a colleague and say, Mr. Bloggs, done an anterior section, he's got a free a CT, he's really sick, a CT scan shows, you know, anastomosis has fallen apart, I'm taking him back. I will still discuss that with a colleague and virtual is here, we'll do it as two people. Not because we can't take them back, because actually you're thinking, oh God, what have I done? This has gone wrong. You feel guilty. You feel you let the patient down. It's, you know, particularly leak is a disastrous complication. So we will often do that as a, as a two person thing. And I find that very helpful. And, and again, it's about working, you know, if you've got colleagues that you, can, that you can ask for help. And so I think it's the same in intensive care, because again, if you recognize that, and if I see a patient and, and you're thinking, oh, this patient needs to go back and, and I'm being reluctant. Now, there may be absolutely valid reasons why I am, because I know the abdomen's horrific and we're going to cause more damage by going in. But I think it's reasonable to say, look, is it worth sitting down and have a chat with this or is it worth a second opinion? And yes, some people might get defensive about it, but they, sh they shouldn't really. I think, you know, that's the kind of, you know, way that we should be working. I, I always remember the first elective patient I thought was didn't die but I thought was going to and I, I came in the morning essentially long story short they had, a, they had a massive PE on day four collapsed cardiac arrest went right to you and actually survived but when I came in the morning the pH was 6.8 and they were on the full ventilatory and organ support and everything and, and actually I went with a colleague because I, I'm thinking this guy's leaked he must have leaked he's just got really sick and that's why I'm thinking this must be my fault and so I went with a colleague and, you know, we looked at the evidence and then at that point you got a bit better. We could get a CTVA and prove it was a PE and all the rest of it. But, but you're thinking something I've done has gone wrong. And actually the colleague's like, clearly not. His belly's fine. It's like, you know, all the, all the things that, that, that suggested that, you know, CRP, all that sort of stuff. None of the things suggested sounds like the prime respiratory event. Um, and actually taking a colleague is really useful for that. I think it's also really important to understand where you stand on a spectrum. And I say this to all my trainees is, where am I on the spectrum in terms of taking it back? Where is my psychology? Am I someone that's going to be so worried I'm going to take everybody back really early at any sort of blip? Or am I going to be someone to be very reluctant to take them back? Or am I somewhere in the middle? And of course, most people are in the middle. But it's also really important to know where the other person you're asking for advice sits. And, and sometimes, you know, you've, you've got a difficult operation. It's not gone well. You know the patient needs to go back. And sometimes you're thinking... I know this patient needs to go back, but it's going to be awful. Actually, I need to ask for help. And I think as intensivists, you know, done in the right way, that can be very helpful and very beneficial. Um, and I think for us, if we're not taking someone back, it's about explaining that, say, yeah, this, this person's really sick. The likelihood is they may not survive. But if I take them back and do a laparotomy, there's nothing I can fix. I think this is a case of either they're going to be, their physiology can be strong enough to, to come through this or it's not, but about explain why that might be. Well, actually, it's after was so horrific last time that if I go in, I'm going to make five or ten enterotomies. We're going to have fistula everywhere. I cannot make this better, or or whatever. And I think I think it's again about that communication. But again, we we as surgeons historically have not been good at recognising those human and psychological factors. And I think there's been a lot of work done on that with non-operative skills and things. Um, but 
I think in the heat, the heat of the moment, it's difficult to forget that. And and I think, you know, again, even simple stuff like who's going to speak to the patient afterwards or the relatives afterwards. And again, I, I, you know, as surgeons, we, we've certainly done that for colleagues when they've been too upset to go and speak to a relatives afterwards because something bad happened. Not, so they may caused by, by by this series of events, and I think recognizing that in each self and say, you know, I've 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 been with um, I remember going to a colleague uh, to obstetrics and things and, and 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 taking over that consultation and actually explain what happened because you're upset, you you're upset, and the family are upset, and everyone's upset, and a bad outcome has happened, and and that's often through no fault, it's through you know a series of events. But I think recognizing that's difficult, and certainly when you've got patient IQ, I find it really helpful to go with one of the intensivists and speakers. You know, we'll talk about the operation and what complications happened and then you know the intensivist will step in with how they're doing or what the next steps are or about weaning or ceilings of care or whatever it might be and i think again that, that support we're not good in medicine often supporting each other you know we're all busy and, and and things and i think you know that's got to change and it, and it is changing rightly so and i think you know as intensive and care and surgeons we're, we're closely linked and i think we're in a good position to kind of do that together when we do it well and i think i find it super helpful going right to you with the relatives since we can the two of you together and, and again there'll be questions if i go that the, the relatives last that i've got no idea and i'm sure there's questions when you go that they're going to ask you something did the surgeon do it wrong or whatever and they could say no no this is why we did whatever and, and i think it's it's really key that we we, we we take joint kind of approach to that i think it's very helpful so one one of the one of the clinical aspect that I'd like to ask you about is regarding stomas. So it's not uncommon for patients to come to intensive care postoperatively with with a stoma, and I suppose I appreciate it's fairly broad, but I just wondered if you could just talk through what sort of aspects of of to do with stomas would sort of concern you that you you know that you'd be wanting to know about. You'd be wanting intensive care to, to call the, the on call or yourself to say this is happening, and we'd like you to. We'd just like your opinion on it. Yeah, I think this is so. Stomas, this is really not taught very well um, at all. So, uh, just as a, a simple my kind of idiot's guide to stomas, which I stick to. So, what bit of bowel have you got? And so that, and then what solution is going to come out of that? So that can be poo, that can be small bowel effluent, that can be urine. It's um, a kind of three common ones from abdominal point of view and then they can be one end as in a single loop of bowel is coming up or they can be a loop so you've got a loop coming up and down and it's been cut in half so it's been laid open like a book and you've got an end double barreled what's the difference double on loop so double barrel is a loop where you've cut it in half so you've, you've got two separate bits and stuck out and then the mucus fistula uh, to age to work out what, what the hell is the mucus fistula and why is it any different to it? It looks like a colostomy. Why is that mucus fistula not an end colostomy? So basically, a mucus fistula is a stoma that's not connected upstream. So the common one would be a mucus fistula that's connected, obviously, in a Hartman's procedure, which might have been brought to the skin. So you say, well, it just looks like a colostomy. Well, it is. It's a bit of colon, but actually, it's a mucus fistula because there's no poo effluent going down it. And, and and I think even that's like kind of you know. And then you hear loop ends. So you bring a loop up, and we divide it, and bring just the end is a bit below the skin. So I think knowing what it is is useful um i think it should be clear from an operation note um again what that also makes a difference in terms of what um you would be concerned about so obviously volume is number one and clearly 
an ionostomy and colostomy are going to be different, but an ionostomy really more than a litre is where we kind of get thinking about um, intervening, etc. with with high output. That's what we class as high output more than a litre. And again, for us, that might be expected. So if we've left someone with short bowel syndrome, we've chopped out a lot of small bowel for ischemia or whatever, we might be expected to be high output. But actually, you don't know. You suddenly you've got two, three, four litres coming out every day. We're like, yeah, well, of course that's going to happen. And you're like, well, I don't know. Why? why? The guy last week who had a subtotal colectomy and ileostomy, he's only got 400 and whatever. So I think, again, it's about us communicating that. But the volume we'd want to know about, because, again, we're probably used to managing the paramycode and PPIs when we're going to try and switch somebody off with TPI and that kind of thing. So volume. The classic one, isn't it, is it looks a bit dusky and it looks a bit bruised. Um, and I think, again, if you've got concerns, um, it's useful for us to know most of the time we don't intervene unless it looks absolutely dead we're going to watch it because they often look bruised in the first few days and actually they, they, they get a bit of mucosal ischemia and that's what looks dusky and bruised and we've caused a hematoma where stitching it's a classic one and that sloughs off and it's absolutely fine things that you can do to check that you can look with a pen torch and try and look a bit further in the once you take the bag off and have a look further in it, and it looks bright but again the key thing with that is often how things are changing so, you know, that's kind of the last thing that we'll often look at at the end of an operation. Um, but unless it's frankly kind of purple black, we're not going to want to intervene. Clearly, if you've got a patient coming unwell, lactate rise and the stoma looks a bit iffy, that's often a sign of trouble inside as well. So we'd want to know about it. Again, with a stone bag, so there's different stone bags. You can get some that have obviously got the, the see-through kind of window that you can look through and that kind of thing. So if you've got a stone you're worried about, then that's useful to do. For example, for our pelvic accentuations, the ileal conduit often looks a bit bruised because the way you have to form it, there's less bowel that we should do, particularly in a fatter person. Um, the, the, the tip often is a little bit mucosally kind of vulnerable. And so they often look a bit bruised and then they kind of scab off and fill down. But I think, again, with that kind of patient, it's about looking at it and then going back three or four hours later to find the patient's well and looking about it. But if you've got concerns, we'd want to know. Obviously, blood out of a stoma. So virtually every stone when you form it in the first 24 hours, you'll have seen the bag and there's a bit of bloody fluid in it. And that's usually a combination of a bit of bloody fluid from the abdomen that's coming out through the, the kind of gap in the sutures. And sometimes a bit of bloody fluid from around where the stitches themselves have been taken. And again, we're not unduly concerned about that. But again, volume is key. If you've got, I don't know, if the bag's filling, you know, if you've got a bit of fluid, 50, 100 mils of serous sanguinous fluid or um, whatever that's that's fine a bit of hemospherous fluid and um, if you're getting more than that we'd want to know and again you know it's the simple parameters of bleeding obviously um, and I think I think they would be the main things um, the, what, what would be ideal is almost to take a photo of what it looked like at the end of the procedure and stick it next to it that's I've never thought about doing that but it's probably quite useful um, probably quite simple to do really but um, I've never I've never thought about doing it or done it before um, and again Depending on what dressings you've got on, taking the stoma bag off can be difficult and it's not straightforward. Um, so I think, you know, trend of colour, volume of stuff coming out, either whether that's expected content as in bowel or whether that's unexpected, then, then I think that's fine. Um, and I guess the other one is it hasn't worked for a while and how long uh, are we bothered and how we treat. And, and to be honest, that's often a question that clearly can wait till daylight hours and, and things, uh, stoma not working. And in terms of what we're going to treat with that, whether that's laxatives, suppositories, whatever. And I think really that's a, a question that can, can virtually always be answered in hours and, and discussion. I know it's a common one. I think the junior doctors get called about so and so has an open the bowel to you, it's midnight, you know. And I think it's about kind of 
making sure that's handed over properly, that's dealt with in, in, in hours and, and sorted out. But I think as intensive care consultants, you, you can't do realistically in, in most situations any harm with that kind of thing, laxative suppositories, but there will be some examples where we're, we are worried and we don't want that given or, or what have you. So I think, again, that's again a discussion I would have with us. So from stomas, is it is it alive? Is it pink or not? Um, the other thing you might be asked is, is bulges around it. So an acute hernia or acute prolapse is the other one. So the so prolapse is when the, the, the actual stoma, so a bit of bowel physically comes out. And that can usually always be reduced with a bit of um, either dextrosaline or just some warm water on it and a bit of pressure on it and you can push it back in. Occasionally, just keep coming back in and out all the time, a bit of like a prolapse can happen. Um, but again, if you're confident doing that, fine. If you're not confident, which uh, is absolutely fine, then again, that should be something we, we should be able to easily do. Uh, and again, a prolapse isn't usually an emergency unless the, the bowel starts to become ischemic and again, change colour, in which case it absolutely is and, and again, should prompt um, urgent review. A hernia, again, most of the time not going to intervene straight away. Um, it'll depend on the patient. If it's very early, so if it's day naught, you absolutely might want to take it back to, to sort that because it might cause problems. But most of the time, if it's, you know, appeared into that patient's admission, you're going to monitor and observe it and things anyway. So um, I think that's probably most things. But I think, again, it's, 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 it's about that clinical context of the patient, how well or not they are. And again, if, if you've got a sick patient, rise in lactate, you're worried about sepsis or, or ischemia. The stoma is a way to have a look inside without looking inside. So if the stoma looks iffy and the lactate's going up, either it's just a stomal thing or there's something more global going on. And again, I think so as a frustration as well. So we want to get a CT scan. Like, well, hang on a second, lactate's seven. Stoma looks a bit iffy. You just need to take them back. But actually, sometimes it's, we want to know, for example, if there's been a clot to SMA and the whole thing's gone down and we're going to go down a vascular intervention route or that kind of thing. So... Um, again, it's how we communicate that and say, well, I'm not taking, you need to go back to theatre, but I want to CT first because I want to make sure X, Y, and Z that has happened. And again, hopefully people being empowered to say, why are you doing that? And you know, yeah, that's a good point. Why am I doing it? I probably don't need to have that open discussion. So, um, yeah, I think that's probably most things. I'd just like to say thank you very much for dedicating your time um, to talking to me this evening, Peter. It's been, it's been really, really useful for me and hopefully it'll be just as useful for... For, um, for our listeners, when when this is when this is put out, so thank you very much. No, thank you very much for the invite. And if anyone's got any questions, happy uh, drop me a line, give me a call, whatever. Happy to uh, to um, to help if I can. I mean, as I say, we, we rely on good relations with lots of specialties to be able to perform our job, and, and intensive care is right at the top of that list. So you know, we've got to work hand in hand.